does it take to make workshops work? And how can we facilitate collaboration that sticks and leads to results? My name is Miriam Hatness, and with the Workshops Work podcast, I'm on the mission to find the magic ingredients that make workshops work. Today with me on the show is Alexandre Eisenstetter, and we speak about brainstorming and the process of brainstorming and how to not underestimate it. And we speak about his tool Storms and how it facilitates brainstorming. So stay tuned. And by the way, if you don't have pen and paper at hand to take your own notes, scroll down to the show notes to download my free one-page summary. And now, lean back to be inspired. Alexandre, welcome to the show. Merci, Miriam. I'm um, happy to have you here with many hats on that you have, uh, the founder of Storms, a vivid facilitator, an entrepreneur, a tools guy, and a strong voice on LinkedIn. Yeah, but not yet a top badge, a top voice on LinkedIn. Who knows? Yes, uh, you're commenting on the wrong articles, as it seems. <laughs> Different conversation. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you very much. I always start I'm with the same question. Super happy to be here. Yes. Wonderful. And I'm always starting with the same question. Very pretty. Are you? Yes. Yeah. Are you? That's a Maybe. sign that you've never listened to my podcast. Are you lazy? Okay. I'm curious. I'm collecting <laughs> answers. <laughs> When did you start calling yourself a facilitator? And actually, do you? Hmm. Yes, I do call myself a facilitator. But, you know, I, I, I don't know exactly why you're asking that question. And it, it's really funny because... I didn't even know the term facilitator existed until I started to be a professional facilitator. Okay. And uh, I mean, uh, when I started Storms, I'm going to speak about that, I guess, in 2012. I also started a facilitation agency. And yes, I was calling myself a facilitator. But really, if you look back, I was already doing facilitation work at my first job. So that's year 2000 and i was uh, i was not a facilitator i was a process engineer but i was organizing brainstorming session i was facilitating brainstorming session so really this this question is funny because it's something i always say is that a lot of people well facilitator is a basic skill and maybe we're going to talk about that it should be much more widespread but a lot of people who are doing facilitation work Don't call them as facilitators. And it was the same for me. I, I was facilitating brainstorming. I didn't even know the word existed. And now I'm a pro facilitator and I advocate for everyone to be trained into the skills of facilitation, etc., etc. And I think I've been fighting so much time. I mean, so many people don't even know what it means. And even if they heard the word, they don't really know what is the facilitator, what's the difference with a coach, a trainer. Well, you know all that, obviously. Yeah, there's much more education work we can do. And what I love about the question is that everyone on the podcast approaches it differently. Some wear the facilitation title with pride, and they can exactly remember the moment where they put that on. And realize, okay, now I can call myself facilitator. And others are like, I don't want to be a facilitator. I do facilitate, but that's nothing for me. So everyone mm. has a story around that. And I find it fascinating. Also, 
Yes. When did it start? Because for me, it was similar. For me, it was when I read the book of Priya Parker, The Art mm. of Gathering, and she yeah. mentions the word facilitator. And then suddenly I had this moment of epiphany, jumping off the couch, taking a step. That's me. <laughs> I am a facilitator. <laughs> Um, and then it was really kind of a strong moment because I so didn't it, know the word either. So when you're mentioning facilitator, you're taking your block, <laughs> your pad of post-it notes. So yes. is that the cliche? If you're if, if you don't have post-it pads, you're not a facilitator. <laughs> um, this is a very good question, and I'm about to record actually an entire episode with. Benjamin Taylor about the cliches of facilitation. Mm. <laughs> Believe it or not, I took it because literally back then I grabbed a batch of sticky notes and a Sharpie and wrote on it, I am a facilitator. Okay. And <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is. <laughs> we are part of the same community. This is how you, you recognize, you know, you have some artifacts yes. and mythical artifacts, and these are the two. Totally, totally. And I think it's more than a cliche. It's like, I also have my wall of sticky notes, <laughs> and, uh, sticky notes all over. And mm. I think that's, um, maybe it's a professional disease, or maybe it's just a way how we think and our organize our thoughts. Yeah, well, as for me, there is a fun story about that. Tell I don't know if you know. Tell about us. That. Yeah. So I started uh, my first job in the uh, year 2000. It was the 1st of April 2000. I remember that. And I was hired in an American company that is called 3M. So 3M mm -hmm. is... The sticky notes. Yeah, the company that is manufacturing hundreds of other stuff. It's manufacturing post-it notes. And I started as a process engineer in a plant. And guess what was manufactured in this plant? Post-it notes. Post-it notes. So I started my career in a plant producing the post-it notes. I think that's a sign, right? It is. It's uh, very sticky uh, as a story. Yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 well, well, I need to. German humor. Yeah. I think I'm going to write it down because I'm going to reuse it. So yes, that, that was my first job process engineer and one of my first I also did Six Sigma project and mm. one of my first Six Sigma project was uh, optimizing the paper waste of the post-it line which is okay now I, I I will build an arch because what I find interesting also in your profile is the tech side of facilitation so mm -hmm. what can we bring to the virtual digital world what is better on site. So how do you think is the order of importance having or coming from the process world? Is facilitation about the process? Is it about the mindset? Is it about the tools? It's certainly not about the tools. And it's someone who is building a tool for facilitators. I just wanted to make that. sure. <laughs> and um, well, And by the way, that's that's a huge problem when you look at social networks and LinkedIn posts and Twitter, and not only about facilitation, by the way, everybody's talking about the tools. And, and the, uh, what's more important is the process and the methods, and what's even more important are the principles. So it's a, mm. a bit like that, principles, methods, and tools. And 
everybody's talking about the tools, but what is really important to uh, understand and um, what is really important to apply and the perspective that is really important is the perspective of the principles. So, for example, if you talk about brainstorming, so, well, brainstorming is a very, it's a word with different meanings depending on uh, on different people, but uh, there is the tool, the brainstorming ideation, idea generation tool, and then you have the principles at the bottom, which are alternating divergent thinking and convergent thinking, and knowing what are the rules to apply when you're in a divergent phase and when you're in a convergent phase. And this is what is much more important than everything else. Yes. And just and, applying mm, a tool uh, as a recipe without understanding what you're doing. Beautiful. And what I find, I find many things beautiful in what you just shared. <laughs> One of those is that you identify brainstorming as a tool. So within the toolbox, so not only the shiny object tools that would be platforms that we're using, for instance. Yeah, of course, you have different categories of yeah. tools. Tools is a very wide category. But for me, um, the brainstorming technique is a tool. Cool. Thank you. The process behind is creative problem solving, which is a very powerful process to solve problem with using creativity. And the principles behind, you have many, but one of them are alternating, diverging, and converging. And you have the same for design thinking. You would have brainstorming, which is a tool of the process of design thinking. And then you have the principles like empathy, iterative, stuff like that. Yeah. And then, thank you for dissecting that. And it would actually be interesting to have... Yeah, a visual with all these tools or the main activities that we are using boiled down to their principles. Because I think then you have these meta principles where almost every facilitation tool stands on, which is equality of voices, mm-hmm. non-judgment. Yeah. And once you lay all these facilitation principles, everything you do on top which might be a process, an activity, or a tool that that you are using, when you are using it, it must respect the principle. And when you follow a methodology, if you change it, you have to make sure that it still respects the principle. Mm. And this is what I explain, is that some tools look very simple, okay? And, okay, they are deceptively I don't know if you say that in English, deceptively simple. Mm -hmm. And so people think that, okay, I can change it just like that. But if you don't understand why it has been built the way it is and the principles that it checks, uh, if you you don't understand that, when you change it, you're going to change it in a bad way. And this is typical of brainstorming and uh, not using brainstorming looks so simple you know just throw ideas like that and you throw another idea but and then you say okay i can so easy i can change it and make it my own but if you don't master the principles that are behind you're going to mess up everything you're going to mess up the beauty of this simple tool and you're going to end up doing bad things and i would love to dive a little bit deeper into that 
Because um, also knowing that in our exploration call, you shared that you started with very large on-site brainstorming sessions. So that was yeah. this was your main product. So what can you, what are one of those pitfalls of brainstormings of doing it wrong? And how can you actually master that? Because I think the biggest nightmare of facilitators, especially beginner facilitators, like, okay, we have this vibrant, great dynamic energy, so many ideas, all the walls are plastered with sticky notes. And then what? Okay. So this is a complex question because maybe we should talk a little bit more about the normal brainstorming with a group of seven people or 10 people first, and then we'll get to the... Can we do that? Can we, Can I speak a little bit Please. about yes. brainstorming in general? So brainstorming, first of all, we need to define what is brainstorming because maybe brainstorming is, you know, the, the full technique from Alex Osborne book, 1950s. I have one here. I come back. And there it is, applied imagination. 1953 or two, something like uh, that for the first edition. So this is one of the books where Alex coined the word brainstorming, maybe a little bit earlier on something else, but here it's really defined. And look at the size of the book, okay? Mm -hmm. Okay. A bit more than a centimeter, an inch maybe. Yeah, so you have 200, no. 360 pages. Okay. So now look at a blog post uh, about what is brainstorming. As many words as he got pages. So, yeah. So, um, this is the big problem. Everybody is talking about brainstorming. No one has read, read this book except geeks like me. And so it's, it's much richer than people think. It's less simplistic than people think. So, Brainstorming might be the technique that is described in great detail in this book. It might also be a full toolbox of idea generation technique. And personally, when I talk about brainstorming, I, I, I'm a little bit lazy, but for me, brainstorming is you put in the same box uh, reverse brainstorming, question storming, brain writing. All of that for me are brainstorming techniques. Mm -hmm. Okay. So when I read an article about don't do brainstorming, do a brain writing instead, yeah, okay, yeah, these are just diverging techniques for generating ideas. Okay, so that's the second definition you could have for brainstorming. Okay, and the third, uh, uh, the third one, which I think would be the best one. Again, it's incorrect, but it's a, when I speak about brainstorming, I I speak about the art and craft of creative problem solving okay mm -hmm. so it's a, it's it's the practice of using deliberate creativity to find ideas to solve complex problem okay this is creative problem solving and it's the art of going from a divergent phase to a convergent phase or going several time into divergence and several time into convergence and like that okay so what is brainstorming? Is it the simple technique? Is it the idea? Is it creative problem solving? The one thing that is clear is that I'm not for the overly simplified view of uh, the clickbait article that you find on a LinkedIn post or even on a 280 character tweet. Okay. So this is not 
when I speak about brainstorming, it's not that. It's more the overall art and craft of generating ideas, creative ideas to find solutions to complex problems. Okay, so this is, when I speak about brainstorming, this is what I speak about. So it okay? does include the convergence part. Yes, uh, yes, because you cannot do, I mean, they go by pair. You cannot buy divergence and not convergence. Uh, you know, Thank when you. you go to the supermarket, you you get both. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to buy a brainstorming, and you end up with thousands of ideas which are not good, by the way, because by definition they are seeds of ideas, and you have plenty of crazy stuff. It doesn't make any sense to buy just a divergent phase. Okay, mm -hmm. so when a client buys a brainstorming, obviously the client is going to buy the convergent phase with it. Right. So when I speak about brainstorming, I speak of both. Okay. But that's my own interpretation. Thank you. And by the way, something else. If you speak about brainstorming to a design thinker, they think of it as the tool that they use in the solution phase. Okay. But you can brainstorm many other stuff than solution ideas. You can brainstorm questions, you can brainstorm challenges, you can brainstorm causes, you can brainstorm actions, you can brainstorm whatever you want. So it's X-storming, not idea-storming, etc. So this is another uh, slightly mm -hmm. important stuff. When I speak about brainstorming, it can go into the first step of a project, which will be brainstorming the, 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 the problem and alternative problems of to really fine-tune the problem that we want to solve. Okay? Yeah. So, sorry, it was a, a very big digression. Are you still there? Yes, and I think it's a, it was a very important one. Yeah. To be clear what we're talking about. And now I would be interested, because you mentioned that people would change the brainstorm, but then forget to realign it to the principles or to double-check whether it still holds the principles. Can you think of an example? I see a lot of pitfalls. So when you look at brainstorming from a wide perspective, I see a lot of people doing some mistakes in the convergent phase, by the way, more than the divergent. The divergent phase is very difficult to uh, to facilitate. So what I would like to say is that it looks simple, a brainstorming, but for me, it's one of the most complicated type of workshop to facilitate. I think it's much easier to facilitate a strategy session or a visioning session or a lot of a business conversation. I think it's much easier than a brainstorming because uh, in a brainstorming, as I said, it's not only about the technique. It's not only about the facilitator. You could be a great facilitator. It's also about the ability of the participants mm. to go one step beyond and to be able to make some conne unexpected connections. And even if you use techniques, and we use these techniques to help them go further, for some of the participants, it's going to be very hard. And I have seen firsthand the difference between a group of participants who had been trained into deliberate creativity And in the same room, I had people who were not trained and the difference, and I was using the same technique and obviously I was the same facilitator. And um, there was um, a huge 
difference in the quality and the diversity uh, of the ideas generated by the second group. And the so, quantity, I imagine. The quantity too, yeah. It's quite easy to make people generate a lot of ideas, but they're not going to be very diversified and they are not going to be, yeah, the quantity of unique ideas. Yeah. yeah. And I, yeah. I would not dismiss the importance of quantity as well, because I think it's a quantity of bad ideas that then helps a good idea to, to emerge or to make the connections. Yeah. So I, then I come to what I think is the most difficult step. And I think that, yes, we, we can use, once you master the techniques, you can use the first technique. You can do a silent brainstorming to generate a lot of ideas. And then you can use a reverse brainstorming to generate another set of ideas. And then you can use brain writing to generate even more ideas. And then you can use role play. Okay. Once you know that each tool in your toolbox is a way to generate more ideas, you can quickly grow the number of ideas. As long as the client has given you enough time for that, of course. <laughs> Uh, which is always a problem. So then you're going to do the convergence. So do you know what is the biggest problem with convergent phase? Clustering. Sorry? The clustering. So clustering is, is oh, complex and, yeah, and, and, and takes time. But yeah, it, it's... Uh, so some people put it uh, in the middle as as another kind of step, you know, divergent exploration and convergence. Some people put it in convergence. Personally, I don't know where to put uh, clusterization because it serves, sometimes it serves as a convergent activity, but personally, I'm using it as a way to diverge even more. Mm. So, yeah. So the biggest problem with convergence is that the crazy ideas got left out. And usually we get back to the safe ideas. Okay. Mm. And this is basically because we have forgotten that what we are evaluating are not the ideas as they are written, but the idea as it will be once it will be developed and improved and uh, got more robust. So that's, 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 I think, one of the biggest uh, mistakes. The, the second thing is when rookie facilitators design their workshop, they put a lot of emphasis on the uh, divergence because they have a lot of tools to do that. And they're going to they're gonna put one hour on divergence and maybe 25 minutes for convergence. And I've always said that the big rule of thumb is that you need at least the same amount of time between divergence and convergence. And now I think that I would put twice the time. And the problem is, yeah, because... To, to have the time to do a really good clusterization, to have the time to really own all the ideas, to make sure that we don't forget the ideas that have some potential but are not really good right now, uh, to create some creative combination between two ideas to make a bigger one. All of that takes a lot of time, a lot of time. So now I've, I'm thinking sometimes you, if, if you took one hour for divergence, you would need maybe two or three hours to do a really good convergence. Definitely. And I I think that speaking about convergence, a never done before workshop comes to my mind that I once tested. What happens to the convergence depending on the invitation how to cluster? So are we asking the group to combine different ideas and create their own clusters? Are we asking them to cluster according to categories that we predefined? Or are we giving them maybe quadrants 
Okay, so you have as many ways to cluster as the one you just uh, said. It really depends. And as I said before, you can have different goals for your clustering. That's what I mean. And, and because it impacts. So what are so, your rules of thumb, how to cluster? So one of the things that might be really important for your clustering is, and I think that's one of the most typical, is that you want people to take ownership of the ideas from the group. Because what was once the idea of one guy in the room, you want them to, to be owned by everybody. So when it's your priority objective, you use the clusterization for that. You want everything to happen organically with the participants. So you put all the ideas, and of course, depending on the number of people, but let's say we are in a typical seven people brainstorming or 10 people brainstorming, you put all the ideas and they have autonomously to find, to regroup them and to clarify them. Okay, who did this one? I don't really understand. Yes. Okay, we can put that way. And that way they sift through all the ideas. And at the end of the exercise, not only they have these clusters, but more importantly, because it was your goal number one, they have ownership of the ideas from everybody. Okay. So, and for me, that's the traditional, classical way of brainstorming. And in this case, you absolutely don't want to have preconceived categories because that way you influence. Okay. So the, the, the I don't remember, I think it's one of the method of, I'm looking at my library here. Maybe it's in the art of focus conversation. I don't remember, but really the idea is that you put empty columns or empty flip charts with a, with a symbol that doesn't mean anything. Don't put a letter because a letter could influence. Mm. Don't put a color because color have uh, big meanings. So you put a, a symbol that, and, and then people put the ideas together live back organically, iteratively. It takes a lot of time. And to be honest, we never have such time. <laughs> we are not, never given enough time to do a really good clusterization because it could take hours, especially if not... you had hundreds of ideas before. And I think forming clusters, for me at least, it's never really about the class. It's not about being perfect, but it's about it's a way to force, air quotes, participants to really look into each idea because it's yep. easier to read the ideas and to make sense of them if I have to do something with them. If we just ask them, read all the ideas, nobody will read them or yep. won't be that so that's a typical use case, as I said, ownership. But when you think about it, if it's ownership that you're really looking at, there might be other ways for people to take ownership of the ideas. I don't know. We can invent something right now on the spot, but that could be an activity where uh, you, take an an idea. you give 10 ideas to each group and then they have to do something about it, present it to the others. So you could invent something else. Okay. So you spoke about sense-making. So there is another objective to clustering is to give clarity. Imagine you generated 200 ideas. Okay. It's really difficult to understand what we generated because there might be a lot of duplicates or big themes, etc. So in this case, you just want to put the ideas one way or the other in different groups. And just by having the groups, it's easier because you have 10 post-its in one group, 10 in another one. So it's easier to understand the content that was generated. So if your goal, number one, and priority is clarity, 
this is where you could use AI clusterization, mm -hmm. not with post-it notes, of course, but with virtual post-it notes. Uh, you use AI clusterization, one click of a, on a button, clusters are created, and then you have a better clarity on the hundreds of ideas. It's much easier to read them because you can read them group by group. Maybe then give each table one cluster to explain to the others, and you can generate oh. something interesting. So, so you see, that these are absolutely too extreme. You have the 10-second clusterization. You have the three-hour clusterization. And I don't say that one of them is bad. I just say that they are for different objectives. Yes. Clarity, mm -hmm. readability, and very quick, and ownership. Thank you for pointing that out. And I, this was the insight that I got from this workshop, just testing different ways of clustering with the same ideas and different groups that depending on the clustering exercise we suggest to a group, we elicit different sorts of conversations. Yeah. Because if you give them clusters or you ask them to put them onto sticky notes, it's just which ones fit together. And if you ask them to, with a different sort of clustering, maybe a more precise titles or even quadrants, suddenly they will discuss about the idea and think whether they got the idea right. So I, what do you mean by the quadrants when you put some axes? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So two axes, okay. for instance, um, what I love is how surprising is an idea hmm? and how important, for instance. Yeah. So for me, this is not a clustering. Okay. For me, it's more classifying. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There is a nuance. Mm -hmm. uh, classifying on criteria because of the fact that it's based on a criteria. Mm -hmm. But yeah, and one of my favorite ex exercises is the COCD box, which is, um, there is another name, but I've, I've learned it. COCD box is when you have the blue ideas, the red ideas, the yellow ideas. Mm -hmm. And um, it's a great way to avoid the biggest problem that I said about convergence, which is you are forgetting the ideas that are uh, novel and surprising and, and a little bit crazy. So one of the quadrants of the COCD uh, box, we, 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 should, um, we should show it, but uh, one of the quadrants of the COCD box is uh, the ideas that are a little bit very surprising, very novel, not doable right now, but maybe later. Yeah. And that way you keep them. Yes. You keep them separately and you don't throw them away during the prioritization uh, phase. I love that. And for me, these are usually the ones where I would point the group at to have mm -hmm. a closer look. So the surprising and irrelevant in air quotes, because those that the group puts out as irrelevant, usually they're the blind spots. Yeah. It's either something that, of course, this will, everyone thinks about it as not what's that about, um, or totally irrelevant. And then there's something in there. Or it's, um, yeah, it's an idea that really has potential. I'm doing something very similar. So when I'm doing a, a voting activity, which shouldn't be called voting, it's just people highlighting the ideas we think have the most potential. And then, uh, so you, when I'm using Storms, I click on a button and I have this ranking 
in one second with the top ideas with the most points. And then I, I say, okay, so we are not going to look at these top ideas. And then I, I reverse the sorting, which is another click on a button. And we okay. start with the ideas with the least number of points. And I say, I'm sure that there is a seed of an excellent idea in each one of these ideas that you think are bad. I love that. <laughs> it, because it it kicks the group out of this kind of comfort of discussing what is already there and working on the low-hanging fruits. Yeah. And then again, I think it depends on the goal of the overall session yeah. because there are some sessions maybe you are looking for the low-hanging fruits. Okay, what's easy to fix? We only have half an hour anyway. Yeah, yeah. Again, all of that are different techniques yeah. and it yeah. really depends on the goal of the... Um, I if we want to uh, finish, there is another use of the clusterization that I really like. My favorite one, by the way, is that uh, you use clusterization just as an intermediate step for even more divergence. Mm -hmm. So um, this is, again, one of the way where you can use the AI clusterization. So click on a button, 10 seconds, you have uh, clusters, maybe 10 or 15 clusters. And you don't have AI, just ask people to, to cluster as fast as they can, and then to put categories. And then you assign one categories to each person or each group of person, and you tell them to find even more ideas in this category. Mm. And just by having the title, maybe sometimes you're going to have only two ideas in a bigger category, and just by looking at the name of a category, they will find 10 more ideas. Yeah. This one and, then is, uh, and then it might be even better to have an AI or a neutral entity to create the clusters, because then nobody is really attached to them, and there's more room for interpretation and finding the spaces. Yeah, and even you can... With an AI, you can cluster first set and then do another clusterization. And yeah. each cluster is just a new space for new thinking and new kinds of ideas. Yeah. And what's your... So I, I, I never answered your initial question, which was large group. <laughs> and before we're getting there, <laughs> I, I now need... That's my OCD kicking and I now need to... to and this chain. So, okay, we're at convergence and clustering and further convergence and then uh, divergence and then you converge. So what is the best way to actually come up with something where the group is satisfied with? Because I think it, there's a big pitfall of creating frustration, of creating, oh, I haven't been heard, or oh, we we just went with the easiest idea, or I think the biggest mistake of many rookie facilitators suddenly, oh, we don't have any more time. Yeah, well, so time is always the big problem, and not only because we are rookie facilitator or not, it's because we never ha have enough time for our workshop to to do, especially if we are speaking of brainstorming quote. Uh, sessions, uh, you need a lot of time to do a good divergence. Well, first of all, you need time to train participants and to preheat and to heat their creativity. Then you need time to do several steps of divergence. Then you need a hell of a time to do the clustering. And then you need as much time <laughs> to do the convergence. So it, it, it really means that you need to sell a day at least for that. And most of the time, they give you two hours or three hours and uh, you have a day, but you need to do so many other things. So yeah, a lot of time 
we just don't have the time and we have to rush and it's a problem mm -hmm. but it's a bigger problem in in our current world is that we we don't take the time to do the things seriously and in depth anyway ranting aside well cocd box as i said is really really good as, as a way to um, you know to to set aside the crazy ideas keep them and then i never finish a workshop with a convergent phase i always finish a workshop with a greenhousing phase so greenhousing is transforming a seed of an idea into a concept mm, that's very smart because so ending a workshop after ideation as i said no it's a nonsense you mm -hmm. don't want to finish with 150 seeds of ideas ending a workshop with the top 10 voted ideas is not great too because yeah these are one sentence ideas and if you don't capture what's in it or if it's just this, it, it is still seeds of ideas and i don't think it's enough to be something that you can act actionable uh, yeah actionable after the workshop so this is why i always want to have a phase where i develop the seed of idea I greenhouse it mm. to make it more robust and as a concept, okay? So usually what I do is that, imagine that we have a top 10 ideas, I would do 10 breakouts online on site, it's not a problem. And each one of them is going to greenhouse the idea to discuss what's good about the idea, what are the issues with that idea, and a first, at least a first round of ideation on how to make it better. Mm. And then we go from this one sentence idea to something much more robust. Yeah. Maybe you have an experiment. What I like to do is not an action plan, but an experimentation plan. What mm. do we need to test to validate? Mm. Or what do we need to research to make it better? Whatever. Love that. And then it's it reminds me of even personal to-do lists, where we write on our to-do list, we write copy of website, and then we never do that because we haven't mapped out all the smaller steps that are actually actionable to do that. Research others, think of our key message whatsoever, who is the target audience. And with the greenhouse, it's, okay, this one idea is so vague that nobody can actually do something with it. So we will constantly procrastinate because it's so uncomfortable. But by having it more concrete, some additional seeds, um, an action plan. Um, yeah. People will also feel more ownership to actually push the idea further, maybe create some seeds of curiosity so that actually on Monday morning, they think, oh, yes, let's find out whether it does work. And wh what you're saying is touching something that is, uh, I think is the most critical thing that we need to fix or take care of as facilitators. Otherwise, we won't be able to sell any more workshop in the future. So that's basically, that's the number one problem with workshops right now is that we need to make sure that the workshop impact lasts beyond the session itself. Mm -hmm. I often say that a great workshop, so a, a workshop, I mean, it's like a souffle. Mm -hmm. You know the souffle? It's awesome right out of the, out of the oven. Okay. Beautiful. Big. And then it falls flat soon after, the day after. Okay. And I mean, it's really easy. It's not, it's not so difficult to create a workshop where people have a good time and even they create 
they have great ideas and great seeds of ideas and they create something valuable in the moment. But what's really tricky is to ensuring that those outcomes have a life after that. Okay. And most of the time when we're a facilitator, we say, okay, our job is to do this workshop. Okay. So we see our job as this, doing the, the workshop. But if we do take care of only that, we're going to have issues because the client is going to have troubles implementing all the great ideas. Why? Because especially in big, large organizations, they have hundreds of transversal projects and a lot of time workshops are just a way to add even more transversal projects, you know, and we never have the time to do it. So the next time you, you see them, you ask them, okay, have you done anything about the ideas? Well, no, we didn't have time. So that's why very, very early, I started to focus on the what's next. Okay. Mm. When I design a workshop, I make sure that I always discuss an action plan with the sponsor of the workshop or the champion, whatever you call this uh, person. So you want to make sure, okay, you're going to have that at the end. What are you going to do to make sure that you get the value out of that deliverable? Mm. Okay, we need to do this and this and that. Okay, now we need to have someone responsible for these actions or for, you know, the, the workshop output after one day workshop, it's often just a starting point. It's a little mm. bit raw. They need a, you need a little bit of incubation. You need to fine tune some stuff. You need to experiment to validate some hypothesis. Okay, so it's not a finished product that you have at the end of a workshop, except if you do a, a one week sprint, but Typically, you have something a little bit raw. So before the workshop, you work with the sponsor. You define a governance, a plan for the deliverable, which mm. involves knowing who's going to take care of the deliverable and transform it into value. Okay, Because after the workshop, it's never value. It's only after. Okay, So who's going to take care of that? And if possible, you have this person in your prep meetings. Mm. So that this person already knows that they're going to be uh, uh, they're going to be the one to take care of the deliverable and transform the deliverable into real value for the company, and that way you're going to have an aligned the room because this person really wants the deliverable to be very good so that uh, uh, they have less work uh, at the end uh, after the yeah. workshop. So Jimmy. that's my biggest biggest most important thing because I think that otherwise you're going to have workshop fatigue. Mm -hmm. It's already a problem. It's not future. Yeah. You have workshop fatigue. You have post-it note fatigues because I don't have statistics, but my guess is that the majority of workshop are creating potential value at the end because facilitators are okay. Uh, methods are okay. Participants are okay. But the problem is that we are not uh, transforming this potential value into real value for the company because of what happens after. Yeah. Does it make sense? Totally, totally. And I have one chain of so thought that I will park here because before I want to just double check, I have this general question that I always ask, what makes a workshop fail? So would this be your workshop failure? Fa workshops fail if they don't deliver potential or uh, something else? It could be the answer to this question, but For me, it's more uh, the, the question would be what's the number one most critical factor mm. for uh, 
Success. facilitators, mm. uh, and workshop. If you ask me the question, what work, why workshop would fail? I have another thing that I think is really important and not discussed a lot. Well, I've never been in a facilitator training recently, so I don't know what you discuss in this, in this kind of training. But anyway, the one thing that I think when I now my agency is, is very small, I do only one workshop a month. Uh, I really recentered on storms and other projects, but before I had a team. And when I was training my uh, younger facilitators, the one thing that I was telling them that is the most important part of workshop prep is the first meeting. And the first meeting, I call it the scope meeting. Mm. And what makes workshop fail? In one word, alignment. Okay, because you have a real potential of failure when there is a disconnect between, okay, first, what the sponsor want sponsor or champion mm. or organizer what the participant expects what's in it for them and what the facilitator can actually do and deliver remember we spoke about time okay so the first meeting i call that the scope meeting and it's very important because it's going to align all of that the sponsor they have goals the participants, they are investing their time and they have their own expectation. And as facilitators, well, we get our constraints. Uh, do we have one hour or one day? Are we remote or in person? Uh, do we have seven participants? Well, 280. Okay, so often you have a disalignment between the expectations of the sponsor want to get the most disruptive, innovative product idea and you get one hour. Okay. And the participants believe that finally they can discuss uh, some internal processes and roles and responsibilities uh, yeah. because okay, they're overworked so now, and don't now need you've got new a lot ideas. of work realigning all of that. Mm -hmm. So, and um, I think that it's one of the most underrated quality of a good workshop designer is to be able to detect the alignment problem. Mm -hmm. So in my agency, we had a set, we were always saying to our client, okay, in the first meeting, please don't run away, but we're going to do the, the questioning and we're going to ask you hundreds of questions. <laughs> so we ask hundreds of questions about their goal, the participants and the constraints. And then one of the most underrated skills of a workshop facilitator would be detecting in real time the misalignment between the different stuff and being able to say, okay, here we have an issue. Here you have too much expectation for one hour. So maybe it's a day or we reduce the expectations or maybe ah, it's an in-person that we won't be able to have all the right person in the room. So being able to detect all of these in real time is the best way because you just have to do one meeting and you get 80% of alignment or at least you raise the warning and the red flags and you won't have, because if you don't say that in the first meeting, the more you wait, the more you're going to have problem telling the sponsor that, oh, I'm sorry, we cannot do what you want to do because blah, blah, blah. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. You're welcome. Hell yes. And That's one of the articles I want to write and one of the resources I want to share with the community would be my typical uh, scope meeting questions. I think this would be very valuable. Yeah. If you have it ready by the by release, we can put a link in the show notes. 
Oh, well, I think I have one in French. <laughs> Good. I, I will do the translation. <laughs> I think we could do something, yeah. Yay. And listening to you, I find it fascinating how I would say your brain works or how you guide us through everything you say, there is a process behind. So you start yeah. here and then you go there and there's always this red thread. So I hear or I sense the school where you're coming from, the being a process engineer, and this has informed the work that you're doing until today. Imagine. Yeah, this and being a Six Sigma black belt, I think mm. it had a lot of influence. I Yeah, I see a lot of things as processes. I design my workshop as process. But uh, yeah, it's it's not very organic. It's very organized. Yes, I, I can I can hear that, and I find it I find the consistency fascinating, and this makes me curious to learn more about the way you design, develop, and implement storms. Because I can imagine coming from this kind of structured way of looking on how the work of a facilitator starts, ways before the workshop starts. I'm now curious to hear your introduction of what Storms is and what your process thinking behind that actually is. Yeah. So Please. the idea, the Storms idea, initial idea was that, uh, you know, when I was the process engineer at 3M, I was doing brainstorming with small groups in the shop floor operators, and it was working great. And then later on, Six Sigma Black Belt, international projects, teams in Germany, distribution center in France, and manufacturing plant in the US, and bigger issues. And the tool that we had was a phone. It was 2005, okay, or six, I don't remember. But uh, so try to do a brainstorming like that. It's On a phone conference. Yeah. Sweet. It's now that I think maybe I could try now with my experience, but uh, very complicated. So that was the seed of frustration. Later on, I was working on a web company. I was the head of R&D and we were working on a very cool real-time tech. And we were trying to find ways to use that real-time tech. Okay. And one day I was at a conference in London, a dev conference. And you know, at all these conferences, you have these tables with lots of books. And I really love that. I, li I like all these business books and stuff book and one of the book i don't know it's just i just saw the book and i saw game storming mm. hi dave number one and hi dave number two and sunny brown please yeah 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 <laughs> yeah well, i was focused on dave <laughs> <laughs> Then you so um you know i had this love for brainstorming before so i took the took the book i read i read the book uh, in the plane uh, especially the chapter one <laughs> and Now we get to the what I wanted to tell you is that in game storming, everything, the chapter one is the one where it explains the divergence and convergence and how you create games with the alternating divergence, exploring convergence, and then da, 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 all these things, which is a process. Mm -hmm. Okay, It's very processed. Maybe you have all these beautiful drawings that looks very organic, but in the end, the process, they are, the way to design games, workshops uh, that they are advocating uh, is very processed. Mm -hmm. And so I had this seed of frustration from not being able to do remote brainstorming. 
I had this real-time technology for a web application and then the game storming book and it clicked mm. and I said, oh, I need to do an application to do sophisticated brainstorming online. Mm. So that was the aha moment of the idea of storms. So I created a that premature, company. A premature yeah. idea. And why I also say that is that it really clicked the game, the first chapter of game storming because of this step-by-step -step process, because this is what I was already, uh, as you said, a process engineer and the way I was doing my brainstorming on the shop floor. And this is why from the first version of Storms, when you design your workshop, so in 2012, when you design a workshop, you designed it as a series of activities, mm. just like that. You know, in whiteboard application, you have a whiteboard. It's very organic. But what people do is that they do big square where you have activity one and then activity two and activity three. So they, they replicate the process like that. But in Storms, it's a feature. You, you, you prepare your workshop with a series of steps and step one, you do divergence. Step two, you do convergence. Step three, you do green housing, for example. So that, that, that was since the first version, we had this sophisticated feature of having a process where what was shown on the screen was different depending on where you were in the process. Mm, and now it's, a, it's, a, it's 12 years later, it's still mm. a significant difference between stones and the other application on the market, especially whiteboard application. The, the board is different and the step system is a huge significant difference between us, the others. What do you mean? <laughs> Well, they don't have this step system. And in Storms, you can prepare your workshop before. Mm -hmm. And when you have a divergent step, you have a button to add cards, mm -hmm. ideas. But if you set up another step where it's voting, you don't have a button to create card. You have a button to vote. The cool thing about that is that the interface for the participants mm, is always easier. at the most simple level for them to do the job. So that's why one of the reasons Storms still exists without any marketing budget is that it's really, really ultra simple for the participant. And one of the reasons is due to this step system because the interface adapts and shows only the controls that are needed mm. depending on the step you are. And so it's really cleaner and much more streamlined than using Miro or Mural that I love, by the way. They are really good whiteboard application, but we are very different and there are some stuff that we do better and some stuff that we cannot do. Thank you. And Miro and Miro are not necessarily workshop tools. They're used for workshops and they're also used for other things. Well, um, I think there is a, a big in the mind of a lot of uh, new facilitators. If you ask for a workshop tool, they're going to tell you a whiteboard. Yes. And it's and funny because I think if you would look at... I don't know the Miro community that well, but I know a little bit of the Miro community. And from what I see is many of them use it for their day-to-day -day work and for structuring and for meetings and for collaboration, but not necessarily for facilitated group work. Mm. Yeah, well, uh, a lot of uh, uh, the Miro community is very large and facilitators are part of that community, yeah. but not Small one, yeah. Uh, Storms, on the other end, it's really focused on facilitators. And one of our key advantage and benefit is that it is very, 
very simple for first-time participants. So when you're a facilitator, you're having a group that you've never had before, you don't have to spend one minute on explaining the tool. It's, mm-hmm. it's so obvious that you just say, okay, click on the plus button and add an idea. And you need, don't need to drag and drop, zoom in, zoom out, pan left, pan right, all that stuff. Because for each one of the steps, the, the screen reconfigure itself to show only what is needed to, the, to do the task at hand. So that's that's one of the big reasons uh, that Storms is so so adapted and why people who know Storms and mm-hmm. use it one time they get addicted to it. The second thing is that we have very powerful feature because remember my dream at the beginning when I say I wanted to do a tool to do sophisticated brainstorming mm-hmm. because of all of that I said about brainstorming that is brainstorming is not just about throwing ideas just like that. It's much more than that. So you can diverge, you can diverge silently, you can then show all the cards, then you can merge the duplicate, then you can cluster, then you can converge with many different kinds of voting dynamics, and then you can greenhouse the ideas. All of that you can do with stores, and we have features for that because it comes from the way I was doing workshop before. Mm. So then it's it's a platform, it's a tool to that allows all different sorts of brainstorming from A to Z? Yeah, basically, it's very good if you need to do to diverge and converge yeah. and develop ideas. So diverge, cluster, converge, develop, and rate the final concepts. Uh, Storms is really, really good if you, if you want to do that. Yeah, I remember, yeah, I will host my first session on Storms tomorrow. Ooh. Hello, Eddie. Uh, and, Hello, and, Dave. And there, is, there is a rating um, yes. step at and, the end, right? Yes, and the greenhousing as well. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, as part of the New Rules for Work experiment that Storms is sponsoring. Great experiment. And I think that they are trying to organize even more workshops and experiments. So I invite, maybe you're going to post the link because... Uh, yes. Yeah. If they're still running, definitely. Otherwise, yeah. the festival in January 2024. And you mentioned sophisticated brainstorming. It's just because I want to differentiate myself from the blog post brainstorming. Mm, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> just wanted to make sure that I asked the question. Uh, and the fact that it's not only divergence, it's, diver- as I said, divergence, clustering, convergence with many different techniques and developing the ideas and then rating using multiple criteria rating. This is really sophisticated. This feature alone, great for um, group decision making, mm-hmm. it could be a product on its own. Mm. And, but it's really a pity because it's not used a lot. Basically, Storms exists not because of the sophistication, but because it's very simple for okay. first-time participants. So me as a geek, I'm really happy about the sophistication part, but I have clients mainly for the very easy for participant part. Yeah, and I um, I have deep admiration for peeling everything away to keep the simplicity because it's not easy. And I... Very difficult. Mm-hmm. Very difficult. So Storms nearly died a few years ago. I won't get into the detail, but it was only because of COVID that suddenly we, we saw a spike of new users that I decided to reinvest in the tool. And we did two years and a half of redesign. 
Mm. My God, it was my longest project. It was so hard to wait such a long time. But we you know we are a very small team, so it takes time. But we knew exactly where we wanted to go because it was nine years of experience. But we we really know exactly what to do to improve the tool. I can imagine that there is, and this would fill an entire other podcast episode on the pros and cons of such simple tool because basically you force the participants to only focus on what's on the screen and on the ideas and on the content and not to follow all the shiny objects that are otherwise around. So that's why one of the use case terms works really great is is large group workshops mm -hmm. uh, because at least, well, you have open space that are very organic and very chaotic. But when you want to do a, a, a large workshop on a very specific topic and have some solutions at the end, you need to be very structured. You have to be very process-oriented. And this is where storms really shine. Uh, you have 50 people, 100 people, 300 people in a room. I even did 1,200 people in the same room. And it was not not a presentation seminar. We were working on the vision for the company and strategies and dream scenario and nightmare scenario. So all of that with 1,200 people in the room, 400 iPads. And because it was very precisely engineered and processed and we had storms, uh, we were able to do that wow. in something like three or four hours. So yeah, storms is really good for large group. Yeah. Forget about the 1,200, but even you have 60 people or 100, it, it, it really shines in that situation. Also, it shines now with hybrid a lot. Because in hybrid, you need a tool that works as well on a smartphone for the people that are in person mm -hmm. and on laptop for the person that are in remote location. Yeah. And a virtual whiteboard does not work great on the smartphone. That's true. It's too small. Yeah. And what I would be curious about, because it sounds for me now like, why would you do a brainstorming in person? Just the idea of having all the sticky notes with the handwriting or even, yeah, with handwriting that nobody can read. Then you need to take pictures of that. Nobody wants to look at this again. Everything is kind of chaotic. And still there is this special buzz about it or many people yeah. want to go back in the room what is your so um, in favor of one or the other so my uh, facilitation agency it's called ILO because I love to mix iTech and low tech okay so mm -hmm. this is a hint to my answer and uh, my real answer is uh, it depends as always what are the goals what are the constraints uh, how many participants etc but I think that there is a, it's, it's the tradition of using post-it note is very sticky. Okay. To uh, use your own joke. Um, I almost laughed. And uh, in 2012, no one wanted to use storms. No one. No one. In 2012, all the facilitators, the real facilitators were looking at me. No, you cannot do any remote brainstorming. Or if I'm in the room, why would I use a digital tool? Post-it notes are much better. 12 years later, now it's much more nuanced. I'm starting to see some people who, who, who say the opposite. I'm never going to get back to post-it anymore. 
you still have people who say post it, only post it. And you have some people like me. It depends. And often what I, what I also do is that I mix both. So for example, I use post-it notes for um, what I call the red phases, the one when where you have a high level of energy, you want people to write down as fast as they can. Okay. Mm -hmm. But also on the early phases where you know that most of the ideas are going to be boring, dull, shitty, whatever you want, but it's ideas that you're going to throw away. So I make them write them the, the, the post-it notes very quickly on the table, blah, 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 blah. And then they exchange by table and I tell them, so now by table, you have to come up with 20 ideas that you put in stamps. Okay. And then the more, the cleaned up version. So, so I, I do a, a big divergence and I don't care about uh, archiving these ideas or storing them or getting them. And I do a quick mini convergence where out of the hundreds that they have at the table, they put 20 and you have several tables doing the same thing. Mm. And now I have 120 ideas on stores and I can do the convergence uh, on stores, mm -hmm. which is much more easier. So that's one way of doing it. Basically, it really depends what you want, what you want to do with the post-it notes. But if it's only for then being able to cluster and vote, You can use the full digital way. It's not really a problem. Mm, yeah. Um, what I really love for the um, low-tech are card decks. Mm. Card decks are much better. I have a collection of card decks here. I have hundreds of boxes like that. So card decks are uh, not post-it notes, and they are already. you already have some stuff on, on them. And you can put them on table, you can cluster yes. them, you can exchange them, you can do some games with it, you can steal, ask someone to steal a card from one of the table, you can discuss them, touching them, etc. So the touching is, I think, really the big difference. And the exchanging, if you do some dynamics where you exchange ideas, that that might be the where you would keep the post-it notes. If you take an idea, you give it to someone or... Yeah you have a ceremony alive at can bring a little bit of something. Yeah. The tech, the tactile experience. Yeah. 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 Low tech is perfect for card deck. Low tech is perfect for a prototyping. Mm, yes. So these two are much more important than post-it notes in my own opinion, but I know that some people will disagree with that and it's okay. The religion yeah. of post-it notes. I recorded, I think it was episode 39 or 38 with Tamara Eberly from Canada. Yeah, I know her. Yes, on the topic, what if we didn't have sticky notes? And this was also be long before COVID. So how can we facilitate? Can we facilitate without so, sticky notes? So your question is more complex than what if we use digital sticky notes? Because yeah, yeah. sticky notes are... I think it's a great invention, not the fact that they are sticky, but the fact of putting small ideas on one artifact and being able, yes. being able to shuffle this artifact, group them, put them on top of each other's. All of that is a new way of working, you know, and it's a great way to work collaboratively. Okay, you 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 need less post-it notes if you're working alone because you can put all your thoughts on a sheet of paper and redraw and stuff like that. It would be 
it's still okay individually, but I mean, it's a great collaborative tool. So the, the itemized or the atomicity of a post-it note gives it a, a great flexibility and you can, this is why we have developed so many techniques with the post-it notes. This is also why I've taken, I've, since V2 of, since the version in mid 2012, I've also have these little cards installed mm. because I think being able to sort the cards, to shuffle the cards, to merge two cards together, to cluster them in different groups, this is what gives the a, a lot of power. Yeah. This is why it's so easy to to go from post-it notes activities to activity digital activities in a, in a whiteboard or in stones. Yeah. yeah, and I think the beauty of um, having restricted space, so you yeah. cannot write an entire blog post on a sticky note. Although now on a virtual sticky note, you may, which I find very dangerous. So. In Storms, we never implemented the feature to limit the number of words. And it was always on the backlog. And in fact, we never had any issue. Oh, really? We often have the question. And we, 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 I, had, I had the question initially too. I think it's on the backlog since 2012. Being able to uh, give the ability to the facilitator to limit the number of words on a post-it, on a card, to X. Yeah. And in fact, we we have seen that just by telling the participants, make it one word, make it one sentence, or one title and a paragraph. Or asking more precise questions, I think. It's enough. Yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah. What remains your number one facilitation challenge? Well, I think I, I have answered this question when I was speaking about the souffle. I, I really think that getting our client to really do something about the deliverable after the workshop, I think that's the number one. I don't know if, if when you say what number one facilitation challenge, I'm thinking facilitation as the all activity, but is it only during the workshop? No, it's whatever I want. So if it's whatever I want, I think the number one challenge for us facilitators is making sure that our clients we won't be there after the workshop, so our clients are going to transform this output, which is intangible, into real value for the company. Mm. I think that's the number one challenge. And for you personally, inside a workshop? Oh, you make me curious. Mm. So let me think about this one. What would be my number one facilitation challenge during a workshop? So can I, I'm going to speak out loud. I think out loud. So it could be getting 100 of the participants engaged. In a large group, you always have two or three people that are disengaged. It could be dealing with the snipers. You know, you always have two or three snipers that disagree with the goal of the workshop. But at the same time, I'll, I like to deal with them. <laughs> I find it interesting. And the uh, challenge can be an enjoyable challenge. I yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. It could be managing the client during the workshop mm. to make sure that they are not doing stuff that they shouldn't be doing. Sometimes I have clients that are very stressed out, especially for large groups. But I'm very calm, so it's reassure them. 
Sometimes I, I am too calm and they think I am disengaged. <laughs> <laughs> what else could it be? It's not using the technology for sure. It's not delivering instructions. It's not all of that. Now it's, I mean, when I was younger, the first five minutes were very difficult for me. Okay. Because I, at the heart, I'm an introvert. When mm. I was at school, it was very difficult for me to stand in front of my classmates. And I was, I had the, the voice that was, um, what's the name? Trembly. Mm, uh, Slattering? No. Flatter. No, uh, trembling. Uh, trembling? Yeah, yes. trembling. And uh, my hands were shaking and I had my mm-hmm. shirt. That was... So when I started uh, uh, as a facilitator, I think that my first in-person workshop was in front of 100 persons. So I didn't tell my story, but I wanted to sell a tool for uh, remote uh, brainstorming with three or five persons. And the first ever be use of stones with 100 person in person and i had to facilitate that one <laughs> how to get rid of your fears so <laughs> my, my first therapy. five minutes that that was my big big challenge and then then it was okay with uh-huh. and by the way i have a tip for that can i share my tip yes please okay so and it has been given me by a, a, a very experienced consultant at that time and i applied even now that I don't have this problem, I apply it because I like that. But so it's for in-person workshops. 10, 15, 20 minutes before you start the workshop, normally you start having some people going around either outside the room or getting inside the room. So instead of staying at the back, looking at your notes, your design, changing your instructions, too late for that. You forget about all your notes and you go into the room or you go outside the room and you start speaking with the participants. Even mm-hmm. if you don't know them, hey, I'm Alex, I'm going to be the facilitator. Oh, you're John, nice to meet you. So what are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. And you speak for five minutes with one of them, five minutes for another one of them. And maybe out of the 50 people, you're going to get to speak with five or tens of them. So that way, when you start your introduction, you have in the room, you have five, well, 10 or 20 eyes, five or 10 pairs of eyes <laughs> that you already know and they mm-hmm. know you. And as you have already created a connection, they want you to succeed and they mm-hmm. smile at you. And uh, so there is this sort of connection that is very reassuring. And just by doing that, even if you're an introvert like me and at the beginning, it was very difficult to do this first two or five minutes well, it's going to be much easier mm, now. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank I you do it. Tip. I always do it. And I think it's also nice for the participants just to be yes. welcomed and creating yes, of course. safety already from yeah. moment one. Yeah, and I've developed this ability to do um, it's chit-chat, but it's not, it's not artificial. Yeah. You have to really care and you have to ask questions where you really want to, to hear the answer. Okay, so even if it is chit-chat, uh, I don't know, if you're interested in sport, ask question about, uh, well, did you do any sport uh, this weekend? Or if you're interested in, ask questions where you really care about the answer and uh, they're going to sense that. Yeah. And then you can use the same chit-chat as a way to create a soft opening. Mm. I call that a soft opening for my remote workshops. So my remote workshops, I open them not a lot before maybe five minutes before the start. And if it's a small group, I do my usual chit-chat 
oh, nice. Let me have a look behind your, oh, you have a nice mm. drawing. Uh, what is it about? Tell us a story about that drawing. So that when people enter, there's not this awkward silence, you know? Yeah. And uh, if I have a larger group, I would have an activity that starts five minutes before the start of mm. the workshop. And it's, uh, it's designed like any other activity, except that it's an activity that it's okay if someone arrives late and don't do that activity. Nice. Okay, so it's not the icebreaker. The icebreaker, you need to have everybody. Yeah. But this soft start activity is just a way for people to get, to, to avoid the, the awkward silence in an art group. And I think it's important because there's a reason why some people show up early. Because I think the default is people show up at the hour, whenever it starts. So if there is someone who joins five minutes early, it's because they do want to connect or they do feel a little bit insecure. They're seeking something. Yeah, and it depends yeah. on, on the country, of course, and the yes. culture. Uh, mm. In some culture, nobody's going to arrive five minutes early, but you're going to have one person who arrives on time and the other is going to arrive five, five minutes, minutes late, late and some people 10 minutes late. So you yeah. still have to do... When I do my design, uh, I'll always start with at least five minutes late or maybe sometimes 10 minutes late. Yeah, yeah. So. I think that's a very important tip. Yeah, this one is easy to implement. <laughs> yes, but difficult to remember <laughs> because we never have enough time. Yeah. So that could be the number one facilitation challenge too. We never have enough time to do the job the right way. I don't know you, but me, it's always a problem. I'm German. I, I, uh, if I wanted I, uh, for brainstorming, I would do a 15 to 20 minutes uh, creativity training and then three or four rounds of ideation. So that's two hours. And then two hours for exploring the ideas and then two hours for converging and then two hours for developing for the greenhouse. <laughs> wow. Alexandre, thank you. Yes, Miriam. Thank you for the deep dive into brainstorming and storms. And creativity. And creativity and process. And facilitation challenges. <laughs> oh, does it mean that we don't have an easy job? Well, that's the good news. This is why our client needs pro. So thank you very much for uh, asking the question and inviting me. Thank you. And I will put all the links in the show notes. I hope so. I'm going to click on them. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for staying tuned and for listening until the very end. I hope that you found the inspiration and the wisdom that you are looking for. And I hope that you will subscribe to the show so that you never miss any of the interviews with another inspiring facilitator from across the world. I am devoted to continue this podcast and to deliver weekly an episode that maintains the quality that you expect and you deserve. And if you would like to help me to maintain this quality and to keep the podcast free, please help us. Visit workshops.work slash support to make a small donation to keep the podcast free. Thank you so much. I hope to be in your ears next week. <laughs>